Uh, one of my favorite stories, and I, I know I've told it before, and you can excuse me if I tell it again, um, because after 15 years, sometimes I start repeating myself. But uh, one of my, my favorite stories is told of a husband and wife who um, were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And it was a long day of celebration with their family, and the guys and the gals were all together, and they were going through, you know, just basically having a great time. And later on in the evening, as these gentlemen would surround this one individual who had been married for 50 years, they were trying to figure out how in the world could you stay married to the same woman for 50 years. And so he began to share with them what he believed was the secret of their long marriage. And he said, you know, it really started back when we first got married. The first problem that the missus and I had, see, that's why they talked, the missus and I had, so it was when we first got married, I told my wife the very first thing, the first disagreement which she had. She said, I told, he said, I told my wife, if there's anything ever bothering you, you just tell me and you get it off your chest. Don't hold on to it. Don't pout about it. Don't sulk about it. Don't try to make me guess what's going on. Don't resent the fact I didn't understand. Just tell me and get it off your chest. He said, and I'll tell you, the first thing that I did when she did something to upset me he said, I told her that, you know what, if you ever do anything to upset me, before I say something to you anger, before I do something I'm going to regret, I'm just going to go take a nice long walk outside, calm down, think about it, and come back in, we'll deal with it. He said, you know, now that I've thought about it, the secret to our loving, lasting, long marriage is that I have largely led an outdoor life. <laughs> hey, there was a guy who understood what we're going to talk about. The benefits of walking. He understood. He understood the benefits of walking. You know, what's interesting, along with jogging, walking's become a very popular exercise, outdoor sport. In fact, even in cold weather cities, they have these walking clubs. They meet in indoor malls. What an interesting idea. Where you can't walk outside, we'll meet at the mall and we'll walk in the mall. Can you imagine the torture it is for the women that are in these clubs? But, but I want to stop here. No, we're here to walk. We're here to walk. But that's what they do. They walk and they get exercise. Let me ask you, how many of you actually walk for exercise? Raise your hand. There you go. Look at that. I went out and ran this morning and I see people walking all the time. And I mean, walking is a very popular thing to do. We get exercise with it. It clears our head. There's a lot of benefits to it. You know, it clears our head and, and, uh, and, and it does other good stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think yeah, health and, and fitness experts all agree that there's tremendous benefits in walking, and they endorse walking as being an activity that's good for you to do. And I couldn't help but notice that, you know, throughout the Bible, uh, the Christian life is often compared to a walk. Some of us think that, you know, when we become a Christian, it's going to be a walk in the park, but you'll never find that anywhere in the Bible. That's Second Opinions chapter 2. It is not a walk in the park. Uh, in fact, you know, in the book of Ephesians alone, Paul likes to use that illustration or that metaphor of walking to help illustrate the whole idea about growing in our Christian faith. He says in Ephesians 4.1, he says, I urge you or I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He says in 4.17, that you walk no longer as the unbelievers or the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind darkened in their understanding. That you don't live that way anymore. He says that we would walk in love just as Christ loved you. He says, walk as children of light. And, uh, you know, the Christian life begins with a step of faith. Really, the Christian life starts with a step of faith. And that step of faith is simply this. God says that he gave us his only begotten son, that whomever, whoever, whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Basically, the Bible is saying that all, our, all of our faith 
is put in the fact that God said what he said about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Either Jesus came to this earth and died to save man from his sin, or he did not. So it's not Jesus plus something else. God's saying this. You put all your faith and all of your, your hope in Jesus Christ, 100%. That step of faith means this. All right, God, I, I mean, we live in a world that says if I'm going to please God, I've got to do something. I've got to give money. I've got to go to church. I've got to read a Bible. I've got to give up drinking and smoking and chewing and running around with girls and women that do. Um, you know, I gotta, I gotta do all these things. And God says, no, you don't have to do anything. I did it all for you. For it's by grace you're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. So there'd be no one ever in heaven that would brag about the fact that, hey, look at me, I earned my way here. Everyone who is in heaven one day will be there because we simply stepped out in faith, that step of faith, for we walk not by sight, the Bible says, but by faith. That step of faith that says, God, this is, this is strange to me, but I'm going to trust you and believe you when you say that Jesus paid the price, he did it all, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in him. Solely upon him and him alone, not him plus baptism, not him plus reading the Bible, not him plus the sacraments, not him plus something else. It's simply on him. God says that our step of faith enters us into this relationship with God, and now what God says we need to do is we need to progress or walk forward in that relationship. If you've got your Bibles in Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul makes very clear uh, what he's talking about as far as this step of faith or this walk of faith is concerned. He says this in verse 13 of Philippians 3. He says, Brethren, I don't regard myself as laying hold of it, but one thing I do is I forget what lies behind and I reach forward to what lies ahead. Isn't that a wonderful truth? What God is willing to do is to forgive us of our past and everything in it when we step out in faith and say, God, I believe what you say about Jesus Christ. Forgive me of my sin before you. God says this, hey, I'm going to forgive you of your past. Paul says, I forget what lies behind. All the things that I thought would make me pleasing to God, I'm going to forget about all of them. The good things, and I'm also going to forget about all the bad things that I've done. And I'm going to forget about all the good things that I did, thinking that was going to gain me favor with God. I'm forgetting what lies behind, but I'm pressing on or reaching forward to what lies ahead. And he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. That's the attitude God wants us to have. And if you don't have that attitude, he goes on to say, you know, if you don't have that attitude or a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. He's saying that there's times when we're doing what's wrong before God and when we don't have the right attitude or the right approach to life, God says, hey, you know what? I'll reveal that to you. And so this whole idea of walking in faith is something that shows progress or progression. And anyone that's walk, that walks for exercises notices the difference, as, as I have when I have run. I, you know, when I first started running, I couldn't run down to the end of the street. And there was a progression that takes place where all of a sudden you build up endurance and you build up stamina and all of a sudden you've got a gal who couldn't walk out the front door that's now walking around the neighborhood. And it's a wonderful truth about the fact that as physically uh, we will progress, so spiritually God wants us to progress. He wants us to move forward in our relationship with him. But so many of us are still comfortable or content sitting on the couch and eating ho-hos and ding-dongs. You know? And we need to recognize that that's not, God's not called us to such a lifestyle. And saying, move forward. And in 1 John 1, 5-7, we're told that we're to walk in light. That we're, to make full, that we're to make forward progress or movement. What's interesting about this is last night, the high school my son plays baseball for, our son plays baseball for, it's, he's only my son when he screws up. Um, I forgot. You know how that is. You know, we all know how that is. Hey, your son. 
I was there when you gave birth. I saw that. But uh, anyway, but they had a high school baseball tournament, and uh, it was yesterday. And what was it? You know, it's a base, I mean, a golf tournament is a golf tournament, except for this one's a little different in that this golf tournament was actually last night. And it was last night, and they don't have any lights on the course, which makes a really fascinating golf tournament because what you have is these, these uh, golf balls that glow in the dark. And there's a lantern on each tee, and there's a, a, there's a um, little glow stick that's in the flag on the hole. So I'm thinking about this because, you know, so, well, I'm always thinking I need another illustration. Lord, I'm running out of time. It's Saturday night, and I've got to teach in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, and he always comes through with a good one. But, you know, and here's the illustration. The illustration was that we're, we're on the tee, and we're going to hit, and everything's dark, pitch black, except for there's a lantern here that shows you where you are and where your ball is. And then in the distance, you can see where you need to go. And there's a little glow stick on the flag. Now, what's interesting, the baseball players are all on the course because they would pick up the ball and put it to where the best ball was hit. But every now and then, what they would do is, every, on occasions, when you'd look, uh, the, the, the flag was down there and you saw it was lit up and you knew that was where you were supposed to go only to find out that they were just messing with you and they had moved it. <laughs> Isn't that great? It was like, you know, there's just like, they're, uh, over here! But the hole is like way over there. Well, see, and I'm thinking, you know, isn't that the truth of the world that we live in? Because what God says is that his word is a lamp unto our feet, just like the Coleman lantern that shows you where you're standing. And the word of God is a light unto our path, which shows us the direction that we're to go. Now, every now and then, we live in a world where there's a light out there that's telling us this is the right way to go, but it's not the right light. And we'd see lights that were hanging from people's porch lights and lights hanging from the barn and lights hanging from different directions. Those weren't the right lights. There was only one light and one truth. And see, what's fascinating is God says, hey, that's the whole point I'm trying to make here. God's word is the only truth that this world will ever know. Jesus Christ is the only light. He's the light of the world that this world needs to know how to get in a relationship with God. Everything else out there is an illusion and it's false. And sometimes even Satan himself appears as an angel of light, deceiving people. We read and hear all, this, all the time about, and this is kind of getting off track, but this has to do with light. But we read, read and hear a lot about people that say, you know, I, I've had this near-death experience, but I'm not worried about dying because I saw this light. Hey, you know what? The interesting thing is the question that you've got to ask is this. Does that person know and have they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and in him alone if they haven't done that and they think that there's all roads lead to heaven or somehow or another it doesn't really matter because I've experienced this near-death experience and I'm not worried because I saw a light. My counsel to them is this. Hey, you know what? If you were out in the dark standing on a railroad track and you saw a light coming to you, hey, I'd worry. <laughs> Don't get deceived by that, that it was light and it felt good. Hey, man, I know I've been hitting the head playing football. And I've seen lights, too. And they're not the same lights. Jesus is the light. He's the true light. And the Word of God is the lamp that God has under our feet and the light into our path. And he gives us direction that we need to go. So all of this brings us back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul gives us, basically, some more insight as to how to walk and progress in a manner that's pleasing to God. If you've got your Bibles, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 4, we read these words. It says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, he says, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. It says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, 
not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to do and excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You know, this section teaches how Christians are to, to uh, live or walk down here on earth in light of the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, don't forget that the whole theme of this letter is to encourage these new believers that, yes, Jesus Christ is indeed coming one day back to this earth. And the question that they had for him is, what are we supposed to be doing in the light of the return of Jesus Christ? What are we supposed to do while we're still here until he comes back? That was the question that prompted this letter. And so as we look at this, we need to realize and understand that uh, one day Jesus will come for his church. Next week in the section that we're going to talk about, we're going to discuss specifically what that occurrence is all about, how it's going to take place, and what we have to look forward to. But in the meantime, until our feet are caught up in the air, our feet are down here on the ground, and we're supposed to be doing some walking. We're supposed to be doing some progress or progression in our relationship with God. And so that's really what he's here to discuss, and we're going to take a look at it. Now, what's fascinating is the word that he uses to begin this section, if you look at verse 1 again of chapter 4, the word with which uh, Paul begins chapter 4 finally wasn't intended to introduce the last part of this particular letter, or that this letter was coming to an end. And uh, you'll see there are two more chapters that are remaining in this book. And so I'm looking at this going, oh, the word finally doesn't really mean it's coming to an end. And I took a lot of comfort in that, because I realized that I say that on a pretty regular basis. And, and, and finally, and then I go on for another 30 minutes, and I'm just kind of messing with you. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of the way that works. But, but in fact, it reminds me, you know, there's three kinds of speakers. I don't know if you've ever heard of three types of public speakers. The first public speaker is the one who stands there with his notes like this, and he goes through them, and he lays them down. And you can pretty much see when he's coming to a conclusion. Lays it down, you go one left, he's almost done. All right. Now, that's, the, that's one type of speaker. Now, the second type of speaker is a little more devious in how he does things. He holds it up, you can see him, and he goes like this. Keep shuffling to the back. You don't really know what's going on. Hey, how long has he got to go? How many does he really have there? You know, and as bad as that kind of speaker is, the third speaker is the worst kind of speaker. If you ever see somebody do this, then you're not really sure he's going to do it until he actually does it. But here's what he does. He takes his notes, he reads them, he puts them down. He got it. You're excited. You're looking. There's one left. Hallelujah. Then he picks them back up and he starts on the other side. <laughs> so, anyway, I don't know if that'll help you at all, but just... So the point of the matter is that finally doesn't really mean finally. And in fact, uh, what, what Paul usually does as he goes through and he, and he writes letters to churches, to us, to encourage us, typically you will find is this. The first section of the letter that he just wrote to the Thessalonians will be a section that deals with doctrine or truth. 
It's a section that will teach us how to stand firm in our faith, to have balance, not to waver back and forth. And then what happens always in his letters, he'll take the doctrine to which we stand firm, and now he says, now here's how you apply it, and he begins to give us application toward the end of his letter. And in this particular case, in chapters 4 and 5, which we'll discuss, is to say, okay, now that you're standing firm and you understand what you believe, now I'm going to teach you how you're to apply it, or basically where the rubber meets the road, how we apply our faith. Probably one of the greatest um, condemnations that I can think of any of us is that we fill our heads with all this knowledge and truth and yet never make the application when we leave a church or a Bible study or anywhere else, when we go out into the business world or business community and, and when we go out with our neighbors or friends or family and everywhere else, you know, there are so many of us that don't understand that the purpose of learning all this is to live it, to apply it, to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And so what he's trying to help us understand is, okay, let me teach you truth. Now go and walk and live it. Do something with it. That's exciting. And so he's going to say, hey, you know how we can progress in our faith? He's going to give us a walking program or an exercise, so to speak, of how we are to walk. And uh, I just took all my notes and mixed them in with the music. Oh, okay, we're set. Ah, you thought you were leaving early. You might be. Have you had a chance to visit with the person sitting next to you? <laughs> oh, that's all right. You don't have to. Here we go. How to progress in our, in our faith. Number one, here's the walking program. Walk in holiness. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says in verses 1 through 4, Hey, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in an order to please God, as in fact that you are living. We ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each one of you should learn how to control his own body in the way that's holy and honorable. You know, if we're to move forward in the faith, he's saying we must begin to walk in holiness. It's an interesting idea. You know, what was interesting as we go through this is the moral climate in the Roman Empire was not conducive to spiritual growth. In fact, uh, it was downright counterproductive. You know, immorality was a way of life. And uh, thanks to slavery, people had the leisure time to indulge in the latest pleasures. They didn't like work. They detested work. And they had slaves. And they said, okay, you go do the work. We've got free time. And we can pursue our own pleasures with the time that we have. And so what Paul was trying to tell them in a very practical way, he says, hey, you know what? The Christian message of living a holy life was new to that culture. And what's really fascinating, and I want you to consider this for a moment, but that message of living a life that would be pleasing to God was new to that culture. It was not new to our culture because this country was founded upon the precepts and the statutes, the commandments of God, the Judeo-Christian value that we do have a creator, he is God. There are absolute moral values that are right and wrong. And for many years, we all understood that. But what's fascinating to me is that we have a generation who has grown up after adults have told them that, hey, God is no longer your creator. You climbed out of some primeval sludge and goop that there is no value to human life. There is no God, and therefore there's no absolute values. Everything is relative. If it feels good to you, go ahead and do it. And we're not very far from the culture that Paul was writing to that just said, hey, this is a new idea to me. 
You mean there's a way to live that's pleasing to God and it's different from everything I see going around us? It's different from how my friends live? It's different from the people that I go to school with? It's different from my, my, you know, my peers at work? You know, there's a different way to live? Yeah, and God says absolutely there is and it's called walking in holiness. For anyone who's put their faith and trust in Christ and made that first step in faith, God says, now I want you to live your life here on earth differently than the people around you. And we need to recognize how true that is. It wasn't easy for these Christians to be believers at, the, at this church in Thessalonica because of the culture that they found themselves in. And I believe this is true of us today in our generation. It will not be easy for us who walk in faith and, and believe in Jesus Christ to live a life that is, from the culture standpoint, that is one that is different from everybody around us because of all the pressures we're going to have to conform and to be just like everyone else. To be accused of being judgmental, to be accused of being self-righteous, to be accused of being pious, to be accused of being an idiot and foolish because, I mean, don't you understand? There's no such things as moral, moral absolutes any longer. And so as we look at this, he's saying to them, hey, I want you to understand something. I want to give you four reasons why you should walk in holiness. The first reason, he says this, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order what? To please God. The first reason that we should walk in holiness is because it's pleasing to God. I don't know if you, you know this or not, but I've heard it said, and I believe that it's true, that every person lives to please someone. We all live to please someone. Many of us live to please ourselves. Many of us live to please a boss or a parent. Many of us live to please a, a teacher or a coach or, or someone. We all live to please someone. Whether we recognize it and understand it or not, we are living to please someone whether it's yourself or somebody else. And I believe that every one of us wrestles with the, with the question, why am I here and what's the purpose of life? What am I doing here? What's the purpose of life? I mean, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And Paul, as he looks at this, says, hey, I want to tell you something because, uh, you know what, your purpose in life is different than what other people are going to tell you. I have heard this said many times to people who are struggling in their marriage, and here's what I hear, and here's the counsel that they get. You hear this. Look, I can't make you happy until I'm happy. Okay, I just, if, if I'm happy, I'll make you happy. What? They're living to do what? Please themselves. If I am pleased with myself, then I'll be able to try to please you. And basically, it's just selfishness, because what, what the, you know, Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes is, hey man, you know, I live to please myself. I please myself with pleasure. I please myself with drugs and alcohol. I please myself with sex. I please myself with entertainment. I please myself by achieving great things. I please myself by getting an education. I please myself by getting this great reputation and being famous in all the world. Hey, I live to please myself. And you know what was at the end of the road of trying to please myself? Vanity. Futility. It was a waste of time. It did not do for me what I was looking for. I've got a longing and a need in my life for purpose and reason and being here. And even though I did all of these things, he said that the, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. He said, I lived to please myself, and then I went to a friend's funeral, and I realized, you know what? That's where I'm going to end up. And I can please myself all my life, but I'm still going to die, and I'm going to end up in the same place. He said, but the mind of the wise was in the house of mourning. He took a note of what was going on and went, hey, there's a greater purpose in life, and I better understand what it is. But the mind of the fool was in the house of pleasure. Lived to please himself. Day after day after day after day, and never dealt with the serious issues of life. He said, I dealt with that. And as we go through this and look at that, you know, we, we go, man, you know what? Even people who are trying to do good works are really trying to please themselves. Stop and think about it. The people say, hey, my whole purpose in life is to try to do good for mankind. 
Many of them do it because, hey, I'm doing it because if there is a God, I want to make sure that, that, that he sees that I'm doing good stuff. Or, hey, if I do this, I'll have recognition, and they'll give me a plaque, and they'll name a hospital wing after me, or they'll you know, put the, my name on the back of a seat at a church, or you know, somehow or another, I'm doing it for me. He's saying, hey, you don't live to please yourself. God said this, and this is the work that is pleasing to God, that you believe in Jesus Christ. That is the only work that man can do that is pleasing to God is to believe on him whom God has sent. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and him alone. If you do not do that, you will never find purpose and meaning to life. When you believe in Jesus Christ and you ask God to forgive you for your rebellion against God, for have walked away from him, and you accept that Jesus died for your sins, what God says is this. Then you have a new nature, old things pass away, all things become new, and you have a new purpose in life, and you begin to realize this. The greatest purpose of man, the only purpose of man, the only reason that you and I are here on earth is to please and to glorify the God who made us. That is it. And when we understand that, we will have that need, that, that emptiness in our heart filled by God who says, exactly. I created you to glorify me. I created you to bring pleasure to me. Paul saying, listen, the reason you walk in holiness is because it's the greatest purpose of every human being that has come to know Jesus Christ. And that is that we are to please God in how we live our lives. That's what we're to be doing while we wait for Jesus Christ to come back or until he takes us home to be with him. We are to live to please God. Isn't that fascinating? We live in a world of people, all they care about is pleasing other people. Let me tell you something. If you live to please other people, you may please God in the process as well because oftentimes when I live to please God, people around me will be pleased as well. When I live to please God, I'll guarantee you my wife's happy with me. I'll guarantee my children are happy with me. I'll guarantee other people around me, my customers will be happy with me in business if I live to please God because he keeps me straight and keeps me going in the direction I need to go. But there are many times in my life where I have sold out, not lived to please God, but lived to please people because I was afraid of the consequences if I didn't and therefore God was not pleased by what I did and in the long run you know what happened it didn't really matter because I couldn't please them anyway we were golfing last night one of the celebrity golfers there a baseball player and it was kind of interesting he said you know you know I, I, something about how you know, I hit a bad shot and we started to boo he goes oh man don't be booing me I said don't be booing you then what are you doing playing professional baseball for a living you know if you don't like to be booed man you sure picked the wrong business to be in you know, but I know everybody likes to have the applause of men. But you know what? I mean, and anybody that, that's ever been in a position where they got the applause of men, realizing the applause of men can turn into daggers very quickly. The Apostle Paul, and here goes one to you. <laughs> you know, think about it. Hey, the Apostle Paul and Silas, you know, when they went around and they were preaching the word of God and they healed somebody that, that, that through, through God, God used them to heal a person who was lame. And uh, all the crowd was going nuts. The gods are among us. It's Hermes and Zeus and they're here with us. And the crowd was applauding. Paul and Silas, you're awesome, man. You're great. And he said, don't applaud me. We are just men like you, but applaud God. He said, you don't want to applaud him? Great. And they picked up stones and they started throwing at him. That's like, if you don't let us worship you as God, then we'll kill you as man. Okay, fine. That's the world we live in. Let me just cut it short for you. The reason we walk in holiness is because it is pleasing to God. Folks, you will never go wrong living to please God. Ever. 
Because in the long run, he's the only one that matters. Peer pressure, business pressures, all the rest of the pressures of life that cause us to compromise our faith and our walk with God, the Bible says, and they came to pass. They're a testing of our faith to see if we trust God as we say we do. It's pleasing to God. The second thing is this. Why do we walk in holiness? Not only to please God, but he says this. Hey, brothers, we instructed you how to live. We, we walk in holiness to please God, but we also walk in holiness what? To obey orders. That's the word that's given, instruction or commandments. God orders us to live a certain way. And God says something to us. He's giving us orders as a soldier is given orders. He doesn't ask a million questions about, well, can I do it this way and is it okay? You're given an order. You, yes, sir, and you follow the command. That's the word that he uses here. Isn't that fascinating? Because what he's saying is that, hey, God has a specific way that he wants his people to live. He gives us very clear instructions and orders. And he says, all I want you to do is say, yes, sir, and do it. It's a question of authority. Is God the authority in your life? If he is, when he tells you something, you don't question it, you don't challenge it, you don't look another, for another way to do it. You just simply say, yes, sir, and do it. That's what walking in holiness is all about. That's what sanctification is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that means simply this. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are sanctified or set aside in Christ Jesus. That you are set aside. You will never be more saved than the day that you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me today. I ask you to come into my life. I believe that Jesus Christ died for you. The day that you did that in sincerity before God, and God knows your heart, is the day that you were born again. You will never be more saved from sin than you were that day and time, period. You were set aside at that point, what? For God's purposes. Then, he says, now I want you to walk in holiness, which is a sanctification that has to do with living a life that's more pleasing to God and moving in a direction of maturity in God. And so we will continue to grow in our walk here on earth, but we will never be perfect because we're stuck in these bodies of corruption that want to do what's wrong against God. We're always going to struggle with that. But that sanctification is, hey, you know what? I'll tell you how to live, and then you go ahead and do it. And as we go through it, we need to realize that one day we'll be totally sanctified or set apart for God when we see Him face to face, and we'll be to- it will be total, and it will be complete, and there will be no more struggles again as there are here on earth. But the point that it's making is, and this is the will of God, your sanctification. And we didn't understand it. But he's saying, well, what is our sanctification and how are we to live that's different from the world around us? And oh, we don't want to hear this, but this is what it says. Now, this is the will of God, your sanctification right here, that you should what? Avoid sexual immorality. That we will avoid sexual immorality. I don't know how many times I hear on the news and I read in print somewhere that there's some scientist somewhere looking to isolate a gene that we can use to excuse our behavior in the area of sexual behavior. We've isolated the gene that makes people homosexuals. That's why they're homosexuals. They don't have a choice. We've isolated a gene that makes people adulterers. That's why they cannot just stay faithful to their spouse. There must be a reason for it. We isolate a gene and come up with a reason why someone would rape another person. We isolate a gene and find out why someone wants to have sex with their animals. 
we isolate a gene, and we're all coming up with reasons to try to figure out why people do what they do. Hey, let's save a lot of time and a lot of money and get back to what God has to say. God has isolated that gene, and that gene is called sin nature. We are all fallen and fall short of the glory of God. We're all messed up, every one of us. None of us are righteous. We're all messed up, and we could all make the same decisions as anybody else in the world around us. And the reason they do what they do is because that's who they are. They are fallen. They are sinful before God. And you know what? And they need a Savior. We need a Savior. That's why they do what they do. We need to recognize and understand it. That's why people live to please themselves. And whether they're living to please themselves by having sex with another person of the same sex or somebody that's the sex of the opposite sex or in some other manner to have a sexual activity that, that, that's beyond them, hey, you know what? They all do it because it pleases them. Let's understand something here. It's not hard to figure out. But God's people are not to live in the same way as the world around us and to buy into the same philosophies as the world around us. And when God says it's the will of God, and this always cracks me up because we're always praying for the will of God. Oh, God, please make your will known to me in my relationship. Here it is. Stay out of the sack together. Here's the will of God for you, that because of immorality, each man have his own wife, each wife have her own husband. That's it. That's God's will for us in our area of sexual behavior. If you're not married, don't have sex. If you are married, maintain it and have sex all you want as long as you can talk each other into it. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, oh man, I'm running out of time. But, <clears throat> but I'm serious about this because I had a friend who was a single guy saying, man, you don't understand how hard it is, you know, not to just want to have sex with these gals I'm dating. He said, I said, I know how hard it is. I know what kind of struggle it is. He goes, no, you don't know. You're married. I said, Okay, the point being what? Well, if I was married, I'd never struggle with this again. I could have sex all that I want. I went, really? I ran home and told my wife. Linda, I got the greatest news I heard today. He's married now. And he sees things more clearly. <coughs> but what's the point? The point is... Uh, not from you. The point is this. It's God's will that we should be set aside, set apart for his purposes, that we avoid sexual immorality, that each one of us should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and is honorable before God. Why? Because it pleases God. Why? Because it's obedience to God. Why? Because we're not to be passionate just like unbelievers who don't know God. That in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Why should we do it? Because that lifestyle is glorifying and pleasing to God. Do you realize by our good works here on earth, when somebody says to you, hey, you know, have you had sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend? You say, no, I'm waiting until we get married. What a great opportunity that is to share with them why you're waiting. 
You know what a wonderful opportunity that is to be able to share why you do what you do, not because someone else told you to do it, but because God did, and your whole purpose here on earth is to please Him and to bring glory to Him and how you live your life. And for those of you who question or challenge whether walking in holiness will lead to progression with God, never, under, no, never misunderstand or underestimate this. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we are, have already told you and already warned you. You know, Christians, listen to me. We live in a culture where we see people doing what they want to do. We look around and we think, you know what? They're getting away with it, and I think, you know what? I think I'm going to try that myself. Don't you ever misunderstand and don't you ever be deceived. God is not mocked. If he commands it, he means it, and he holds us accountable to it. And even though the world around you seems like they're getting away with it, they're not getting away with it because God will punish them for what they've done. And the truth of the word of God is this. Sexually transmitted diseases are a punishment from God. They don't want God in the loop anymore because, oh, what kind of harsh God would do that? The same harsh God that gives us the direction that we need to go in life and when we disobey Him, He says there's consequences for it. The harsh God would be the God who doesn't warn us about it and lets us do it and then says, aha, I got you. But He doesn't do that. He says, hey, I'm going to tell you right up front that this is my will for your life that you abstain from sexual immorality. Peter said that you abstain from sexual immorality because it wages war against your soul. The Bible says that we'll suffer physically because of sexual immorality. We see people with sexually transmitted diseases who are suffering because of their lifestyle. We see people with emotional baggage that go into a relationship in their life and they've got all these relationships behind them that, that trail them into this relationship and they can't enjoy the joy of discovering one another because they've already been there and done it and they're looking for something in their spouse that they're not getting because they got it from somebody else somewhere down the road and they didn't marry them because there was other problems in that relationship but the only thing they really liked was that aspect of it. And so they built this perfect mate as they come into a relationship and say now you live up to this I wouldn't have to live up to it if you didn't have this profile that you had this model in your mind that you've carried with you I wouldn't have to live up to it because we wouldn't know what it is and it would be perfect in God we need to understand and recognize that there's a price to pay when we sin before God Christian or non-Christian, we all pay the price because God's a holy and just God. In Him there's no darkness at all. And if He says we'll pay the price, we'll pay the price. And it's not hard to look around and see it. And it's not hard for many of us who have been there to recognize the truth of what He's saying. But thank God. Who can set us free from this bond of sin, this body of sin? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The good news is, is that that behavior is just verifying what God already says. We can't do it on our own, but we need God to forgive us through Jesus Christ. God will forgive you for your sin when we confess it and ask Him to forgive us when we agree with what we've done that is wrong. God will forgive you for your sin. But many times He cannot eliminate the consequences. King David sinned before God in his relationship with Bathsheba. He cried out to God and God forgave him and God restored his kingdom to him. But you know what? He had nothing but aggravation and problems in his re because of his relationship that he had for the rest of his life here on earth. There are consequences that are just natural consequences of wrong decisions. We need to recognize and understand it. Why do we obey? Why do we please God? Why do we walk in holiness? So we can escape the judgment of God. You know, what's amazing to me is that, you know, this is an area in our Christian walk or the Christian faith that has gotten so watered down because of the culture that we live in. But that culture is no different than the culture of Thessalonica. 
sexual practices of singles outside of marriage that are supposed to be Christians are no different than that of surveys taken from people who don't know God. And that's a sad truth. We have churches filled with people who claim to be homosexual, that claim to love Jesus Christ, and claim that they can do both. God says, what? This is the will of God for you, that if you do know Jesus Christ, that you are sanctified, you are set aside, you are separated from the culture and the practices of the world that you live in. And your life now here on earth is a life to please God. We cannot make room for any area of compromise in our walk with God if we want to progress in our relationship with Him. For those who struggle with sexual sin in their life, the Bible says this, if you know Jesus Christ and God commands it, and this is His will for you, well, not only will God command it, but He will enable you to be able to walk from that lifestyle because He's given you the power of His Holy Spirit in your life. The only thing that's lacking in your life is the willingness to obey. God, you said it, and forget the talk of genes and all the rest of the excuses why we can't stop doing what we do. If God commands us that this is His will for our life, that we abstain His official policy and position, is that you maintain your sexual relationship within your marriage, then God says this, I command it and I'll enable you to do it because I've given you the power of my Holy Spirit in your life to walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. Isn't that great? That's awesome. Don't ever buy into, I can't help myself. You can help yourself by trusting in God and obeying Him. Walk in holiness. Walk in harmony. Now about brotherly love, we don't even need to write to you about it. So I don't even need to talk much about it. But he's saying about, hey, about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do. You love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, you know what? I don't even have to tell you this, but when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you became a child of God, you're in the family of God, one of the things that's going to happen to you is that you're going to love people around you you couldn't stand before. And he said, I don't even have to tell you to love them because you're going to naturally want to love them. That's what comes natural. That, that's God's nature within you. God is love. And God will love people through you if you allow him and obey and allow him to love people through you. So he's saying, hey, keep on keeping on. And I like that because, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's hard to love people. Sometimes people just flat wear you out. Sometimes you go, you know, I've loved you as long as I can love you. And I've just reached my love quotient. I'm done. God says, hey, keep loving them. I keep loving people. Can you imagine if God got tired of loving us because of how stupid we are sometimes? Whoa. Yeah, you better amen. <laughs> I amen. I'll amen with you, actually. And the last thing is this. Walk in honesty. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. Wow, here's some good practical stuff. <laughs> to mind your own business. I like the, the new living version says, mind your own stinking business. Um, and, and to uh, work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on others. To walk in honesty. You know what he's saying here? Listen to this, and, and this isn't hard to understand. These people were waiting for Jesus to come back. Their first thought was this. Hey, why should I keep going to school? Jesus is coming back. Why should I make the bed? Because I'm going to sleep in it tonight. Why should I wash the car? It's going to get dirty anyway. Why should I use deodorant? Because I'm going to end up stinking again. You know, and what they were thinking was this. Hey, why should I work? Because Jesus is coming. So I'm not going to work. I'm going to let somebody else work for me. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to stare at the sky. 
And they just stared at this guy. And what Paul is saying is this. You know what? Here's what you're supposed to be doing in the meantime. While you're waiting for Jesus to come or until he calls you home, hey, go out and work for a living. Go out and earn an honest day's living for an honest day's wages. You know what I mean? Go out and put in an honest day's effort. Go out and work. In 2 Thessalonians, he said this. If you don't want to work, fine. Don't eat. Like that. That's pretty simple. But, you know, many of us get frustrated with that. Well, why save and why put money in a pension or an hour or whatever? Why not just live to please ourselves today because Jesus may come back tomorrow? Why pay my bills because, hey, you know what? Why not rack them all up because I'm not going to have to be around to pay them anyway? Now, think about how stupid this is to a world around us who doesn't understand it. What he's saying is this. You go out and you work hard at what you do. You be honest with the people that you come in contact with because I'm going to open up a door for you to be able to share with them why you are the way you are so that you can tell them about God's love for them in Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That we're to walk in holiness, that we're to walk in harmony with one another, and that we're to walk in honesty, man. You know what? Hey, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Do you realize the whole purpose God leaves us here after we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is so we can influence the world around us to come to the same conclusion about God and trust in Christ? Do you realize one of the greatest areas of uh, lack of testimony on the part of believers is what we do for a living? Our work practices, our big business practices, when know you are a Christian and the question you got to ask yourself is why is there something that I do in business that would make you think I'm not that guy's a Christian man he just lied cheat and stole from us that guy's a Christian he goes to your church he hasn't paid his bills that guy's a Christian oh, I can't. you're kidding me he's a Christian well if he's a Christian I don't want to be a Christian isn't that sad before I gave my life to Jesus Christ, one of the reasons that I didn't even consider becoming a Christian was because Christians obscured my view of who Jesus Christ was. But when I saw a person who lived their life to please God, who was doing what God called him to do, who had a love for Christ, I was attracted to him and said, I want to know more about your Jesus Christ versus the Jesus Christ of this guy over here that I don't know where he's coming from. Walk in holiness, walk in harmony, and walk in honesty. And you know what's awesome? is that we'll make some progress in our relationship with God. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We just pray that we're not just hearers only, but we become doers as well. That we meditate on your word day and night to be careful to do all according that is written in it. And we look forward to the success and prosperity that you have as we grow closer to you. In Christ's name, amen.